welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to Counterpunch, help support Counterpunch during our fun drive. That is the way that you show how much you care about independent media and about Counterpunch, about maintaining this kind of a space on the left where uh, competing ideas can be aired out, where we can unite around issues of war and peace and all of the other things that bring the left together. Counterpunch in many ways is the place to go for those kinds of analyses and it's been that way for 30 plus years so if you want to support counterpunch right now is a great time to do that go over to the website give a donation that helps keep the lights on helps pay for the servers and all the other costs both overt and covert that you might not be thinking about Um, so that is of course greatly appreciated this week it's my pleasure to bring a second round of conversations between counterpunchers Richard Falk Matthew Stevenson and Daniel Warner this time they are talking about Trump the phenomenon of Trump as a political figure and his impact socially and internationally and there's a lot of other issues thrown in as well. I would just note this conversation was recorded before the uh, attack on Gaza, before the blockade, and all of the other things that have dominated headlines over the last four weeks. So please do keep that in mind. That's the conspicuous absence of that subject as explained by the timing of the recording here. Again, Richard Falk, Matthew Stevenson, and Daniel Warner, all regular contributors to Counterpunch. Go over to Counterpunch, become a regular as well by supporting us during the fun drive. That is so appreciated. And as always, I would just let people know I will be back with more episodes very, very soon. I'm still working through a uh, medical situation on my end, so that's kind of one of the reasons for the delay. But we are so fortunate to have these three excellent counterpunchers here to talk with you this week. Talk to you again real soon. Enjoy. The three amigos are back together, this time not in the same room, but in, in this, only in the same world. Richard, you're in Turkey. Daniel, you're in Geneva, and I'm in Slovakia, which, of all places. And for our conversation, this segment, this period, not, it's not a weekly program at this point, for this episode, we wanted to discuss the rubric on loving Trump. Richard, you're the the coiner of the phrase on loving Trump. What did you have in mind when you came up with such a title? Well, I think uh, principally the what to me is mystifying about the continuing popularity that Trump enjoys despite all the heinous things that he has done while president and since being president and uh, the degree to which he challenges the constitutional consensus that had always, at least since the Civil War, kept the U.S. together as a country and as a citizenry. So he's a radical figure that comes out of a kind of opportunistic extreme right that has a uh, frightening fascist lineage. And uh, let me just add one point to that, which is that Trump is an exaggeration, in my view, of a global phenomenon, 
where one sees in a whole variety of uh, cultural settings uh, the emergence of autocratic leaders that enjoy widespread support from their population. So one could do something uh, analogous on loving Modi or on loving uh, Orban or there are a number of uh, loving Putin. All of these uh, leaders somehow engender a level of popular support that defies the uh, imagination that dis emerged out of an enlightenment rationality. Danny? I think Richard made an excellent point, and I would develop it along the following line. President Biden talks about a historical moment, an inflection point where democracies versus autocracies are going on around the world. So one of the things to look at is not only the growth of autocracies or the extreme right wing in the United States, but why democracies are failing. And I include in this obviously the United States, which is supposed to be the leader of the free world. And why is it that the Democratic Party, for example, or in other countries, left-wing socialist parties are not doing better. So part of the success of Trump and the autocratic governments around the world is the failure of other forms of government at this time in history, especially those that are self-proclaimed democracies. So on the one hand, we can say we're mystified by Trump's success, on the other hand, we can lament why democracies are failing and losing popular support. Richard, before I answer both of you, why don't you add something to what Danny has said? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I think that what Danny said about the loss of support for uh, on the part of the left and for the governing process is correct, but I think there's also something missing if we don't acknowledge that this is not just a matter of normal political support. There is some kind of emotional underpinning that makes uh, Trump invulnerable to the normal uh, pitfalls of a political leader. And that's a problem with the citizenry, and it's a problem with democracy. It's why Athens, I mean, it's analogous to why Athens abandoned democracy, because the leading thinkers of the time, like uh, Plato and Aristotle, Thucydides, felt that uh, the ordinary public or the citizenry was too vulnerable to manipulation by demagogues. And what we're doing, in a way, is living in an era of where demagogues are dominating the political space. Richard, can I ask you and Danny, are we living with them 
because the the voice of the people has selected them, meaning that the democracy is functioning. It's just functioning in a way that none of us admire. Or is it that they have managed to subvert the, the normal workings of a democracy and have rigged the, the ballots? Well, I can just say one word about that. I think it's not the voice. It's the heart. It's the that's uh, it's the appeal that this kind of leader at this time has to the deep emotional wellsprings of human identity that somehow connects them not with the kind of figures that a modern society uh, descended from this enlightenment uh, rationality and uh, affirmation of science and truth uh, would have anticipated. There's something else going on that's very fundamental, that's more connected with religion in a way than politics. And that's what I think is very hard to know how to counter in an effective way. I think Richard's touched on the emotions uh, of politics uh, and how in his first comment, Richard talked about manipulation. But now in terms of Trump and his followers, there is an enormous animosity to a certain form of elitism, whether you call it bicoastal, whether you call it the degree uh, gap between those who are college educated. And Richard goes back to Athens, Aristotle and Plato. And in a sense, democracy is based on an openness uh, to citizens voting. And the citizens don't necessarily have to be graduates of Princeton University. And there is a definite disconnect uh, between those in urban areas today, those in rural areas, those who are college educated or advanced degrees, those who are maybe high school graduates. So I think when Richard talks about uh, religion, he's talking about emotions and a definite animosity toward a certain elite uh, which came through, whether it be Georgetown, Harvard, etc. And, and Biden, who has tried to present himself as kind of the average Joe, middle-class Joe, University of Delaware, as opposed to Harvard or Yale, has not succeeded in touching that part of the population. And amazingly, Trump, somewhat to his credit, although as wealthy as he claims to be, has touched an emotional nerve with a large part of the population who didn't go to Wharton or wherever he got a degree from. Uh, and there is that animosity against an elite, I think, which is fundamental, certainly in the United States. I'm not sure if that's true in other places. And it is to the credit, to some extent, to previous presidents in the United States who had certain elitist backgrounds. You think of a Roosevelt, for example, uh, who were able to touch a large part of the population, which the leaders certainly in the United States today are unable to do that. And I come back to the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan or Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, with all of their degrees, they remind me of the best and the brightest uh, 
under Kennedy and certainly under Lyndon Johnson, who didn't understand much about Vietnam and certainly didn't understand much about the population. And it seems to me that Blinken and Jake Sullivan are part of a certain elitist uh, that don't present themselves well to the general population uh, and certainly are not able to communicate with Trump's followers. But there's two sides to the Trump followers. There's the side of of extreme wealth, which he does represent. And then there's the sort of what what might the underclass, if you wanted, the disenfranchised is a second side. But I would ask both of you to consider this, that Trump, rather than being an aberration, is a consistent pattern of American history to wit in the Constitutional Convention, the divide was between Franklin, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, what Richard would call on the side of the Enlightenment. And on the other side, there was Adams and George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, who really did want there to be an oligopoly that ran the United States. That was, there was no secret there. And if they look at the Constitution, you don't need to see Charles Beard to see that the Constitution was drafted for those of extreme wealth. Slaveholders were defended. Capital more than rights were enshrined in the Constitution. And if you look at those two two twin elements of American constitutional history between, let's call it the Enlightenment and be called the oligopoly, yes, Trump is extreme. Trump is extreme in his criminal conduct. But Trump's not the first politician to try to steal an election. That was done successfully in 1876. And Trump is not the only one to rally with extremes. We had Huey Long in the 30s. So my question is, is this, are we romanticizing the American past to draw a line under Trump when in fact that this is what this is what we've always had for 245 years? Well, I I do think uh, you're right that there is a kind of structural continuity that you can trace back to the uh, Constitution and the early experience of being a post-colonial country and incorporating very fundamental injustices into the into this structure. But what I think is, and that's why I keep stressing that this is not a matter of the mind as much as of the heart, that there is a passion that uh, transcends this urban-rural divide and the educated, uneducated class divisions uh, that seems to me to adhere to this kind of leader at a moment in history where uh, the species itself is in jeopardy, that through climate change, through the risk of nuclear war, there's a a kind of disorientation that is uh, maintained in part by the passion that leaders like Trump can and uh, generate, and and it's a kind of macro denialism that is 
leading in a very destructive direction for American society and uh, for a number of other societies as a paucity of uh, leaders responsive to this demanding new world historical situation. And that's what I'm trying uh, to sort of identify. And that's why the, the, uh, I talked about on loving Trump, you know, not just on supporting Trump. It's something else that's involved and it can be the pathway uh, to a fascist dictator. Well, I think that the fact that the three of us, one is in Geneva, one is in Slovakia, one is in Turkey, indicates that we could be identified as globalists. And the question of identification, Richard, I think is crucial to this particular moment. We are living in a moment of complex interdependence. Uh, That's a reality. It's a technological reality. It's a financial reality. And the question is, how do people react to that globalist reality? And to a large extent, those who are nationalist and passionately nationalist are saying that they are against globalism. So to take the story of the bi-coastal, rural and urban on another level, there also is out there a need of identity because certain people are worried and feel lost in the situation of globalism and complex interdependence. So to say, I am an American, I am Polish, I am Hungarian, in a sense, is a reaffirmation of an identity which gives a sense of security in the face of growing realization of the global actuality that's taking place. So I think that, to some extent, answers part of Richard's question about why there's such a strong belief in Trump because I think people are worried and identity politics comes to the fore when people feel insecure. I agree, Danny, but I also think that there's there are globalist signs, sides of Trump's philosophy in that, for example, denying climate change means I can use the atmosphere any way I want and nobody should be able to tell me what I should be able to do with my patch of air. And the the side of Trump that I find disquieting in leaving aside the obvious criminality, which I think is is manifest, but it's the nativist side of Trump, which is comes out of I would say it comes out of the free soilers. It comes out of the know nothing parties. It comes out of all these these slightly kind of strange cultish positions in the 19th century. Trump is one of them. And Trump's followers, in effect, are not dissimilar to some of the utopians that found sort of redemption in slavery. They might have found it in economic isolation. You tell tell me. But the anger in Trump, I would say, is the nativist anger, anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, anti-black, pro-slavery. And that's, to me, the origins of Trump's philosophy. Can I briefly react to that uh, by saying that 
your remarks suggest to me that what Trump has managed to do is to create a Jonestown for America. In other words, a cult that encompasses the society. And it has, as you point out, these elements that are have always been in the broader picture, but they've been marginalized by and large. He's brought them uh, to the center, partly for these reasons uh, that Danny and I have been uh, mentioning. And I think I wanted to introduce uh, this famous uh, Gramsci uh, comment that I, I don't have the exact words, but Gramsci said, in times of transition, morbid things happen. What we are experiencing, I think, is a stunted transition from a state-centric world to a globally uh, coherent world. And, but the transition is encountering extraordinary resistance from this ultranationalism that expresses itself by uh, extreme cruelty and hostility to migrants and to those that would breach these national divisions. So we're living amid uncertainty and contradiction of a depth that has never before been the experience of humanity. Let me ask Matthew and, and Richard a question, therefore. If we can reach consensus that throughout American history there have been tendencies which have been in the background, come to the fore, but not to the extent they've come to the fore now, and we accept my comment about the insecurity and riches of globalization, how is it that we can calm the ardor of those people who are so nationalistic and so insecure about globalization and the change from the international to the global. Because if insecurity leads to this identity and potentially fascism, how do you deal with that? Uh, one way is, of course, what Hillary Clinton said, these are the people we don't want to talk to, uh, I forget her exact phrase, but uh, in a sense, if we ignore them, if we say the 75 million who voted for Trump the last time and maybe more will vote this time, we're being undemocratic. Uh, if it's an emotional problem, uh, Richard, what are we going to do about it? We can't ignore it. Uh, perhaps we could ignore it in Hungary or Poland, but within the United States, it's such a threat to the system. Somehow there has to be, how do you deal with this emotional situation today? If you accept the premise that you're dealing with a form of love, that we have no instruments to counter that. That's why I feel rather gloomy about the future and the uh, I think Biden is a kind of sign of the bankruptcy of opposition to uh, 
a situation that is uh, characterized by the emotion of love. Uh, it's a distorted love and, and has deformed, deforming uh, impacts, but it is not going to be countered by enlightenment, rationality, or by uh, material uh, social protection measures. Uh, New Roosevelt wouldn't be able to handle this kind of passion, unless maybe if there was some deep crash of the uh, economy, one would have another uh, set of parameters to deal with. But short of that, I don't see any signs that there is a neutralizing force in America or many other places to deal with this emergent, autocratic, fascistic passion. What I find extraordinary in looking at Trump from a distance is he really doesn't have a very consistent ideology himself. I don't think he's read six books since he finished, and he probably didn't even finish The Old Man and the Sea in the 11th grade. But the, the problem I have with Trump is, on one hand, his form of fascism is an economic fascism in that he looks at the presidency, at government, as a way to enrich himself and his corporate cronies. I don't think he... I don't think he has national aspirations of a colonial, of an of a imperial colonial side. He might, but I think rather he looks at the world and says, how am I, Donald Trump, and my few followers, Jared and a few others, going to make money out of this situation, which to me sounds like some of the businessmen in Rome around Mussolini in the 1920s who didn't really care what Mussolini did or said or stood for as long as they made money out of it. And so, Danny, I'd like to come back to your your dichotomy between elites and non-elites as the division point. But since to me, Trump is a is what Richard's describing, like a, a coup d'etat of a cult. I yes, 75 million people did vote Republican in the last presidential election. I don't think all 75 million people believe everything Trump believes any more than everybody who voted for Biden agrees with everything Biden will do or has done. But let me ask you, is is Trump is is Trump's fascism of an international character where he wants to make alliances with North Korea and Putin against Ukraine and Europe and the global south? Or is it just a get rich quick scheme? I think, Matthew, there's a little bit probably of both. But but the argument uh, is Richard's point, and I'll come to that, Matthew, about the, the, the difference between the international and the global uh, and Richard's gloom. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at what's going on in New York at the U.N. And after all, the secretary general is more a secretary in certain ways than a general. But there is a certain moral uh, leaning behind the charter, there's a certain moral role for the UN. It doesn't have an army. And yet here we have a meeting where the leaders come 
talk about various issues, climate change is coming up, and yet four of the five members of the Security Council, permanent members, did not have their leaders in New York. And I think this is, again, a part of a movement where there is little leadership, if not no leadership, on the part of the global community. I mean, I hate to use that expression, international uh, community, but global community, uh, so that if we're moving technologically, financially, away from nationalism to something larger, and certainly the problems of pandemics, the problems of climate change are global problems, there is no pretense for the moment at any form of global either leadership or moral leadership. And if Richard is, is focusing our attention on emotions, to listen to the Secretary General Guterres, when there are four out of five leaders of the Security Council not there, I mean, it is very, very gloomy. Uh, so in that sense, uh, Matthew, to think about a form of global government, I mean, Richard for years has talked about kind of a global assembly uh, we're getting further and further away from that at the same moment that the problems become more and more global. Uh, yes, I completely uh, agree with this series of comments that Danny just made. Uh, I think part of the uh, disaffection from the UN, I'm pretty sure Biden wouldn't have gone if the uh, UN wasn't headquartered in in New York, and he was the host of this gathering. Uh, there is a uh, helplessness on the part of these supposed leading uh, governments, and there's a feeling of a ship without a rudder. And I felt that ever since. The U.S. acted unilaterally in Iraq and to some extent in uh, Afghanistan and Syria. Uh, the U.N. has demonstrated its irrelevance. And what the U.S. has tried to do in this post-Ukraine period is to revive the U.N. or revitalize the U.N. as a uh, instrument of its foreign policy to rally countries against Russia, to compromise the veto, and to do various things that will make it more of an instrument than a, uh, a community-generating framework where countries that disagree can at least communicate with each other. So I see it as a low point for the UN and a high point for groups like the G7 and the uh, BRICS coalitions that are emerging outside the framework of the UN and purporting to uh, address the agenda that should be uh, central to what the UN is preoccupied and committed to do and has the funding that would enable it to do it. That was what 
part of the Secretary General's complaint was that it has a voice, but it has no money. And you can't change the world without material capability. I, I think you're right, Richard, in that the, the, the United States, maybe if the United States, if when John Quincy Adams was president, had the ability to be the counterweight to some of these negative trends in the UN and other bodies. But if you start about 1848 with the Mexican-American War and go through to the Spanish-American War up to Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and stops in between, the United States, for whatever reasons, probably economic, ceded that moral high ground to bring others behind the idealism that was present when the Constitution was drafted in 1789. Now Trump in, is in some ways in lockstep, the correct verb, I think, with, with so many of these other strong men, North Korea, Russia, you name it, India, that's his, that's his peer group. And they don't want to hear about the issues that everybody else feels are sort of weighing on their soul, inflation, climate change, whatever, whatever they are. To me, the hope is, is somehow to allow the empowerment of, of what I consider a natural majority in the United States, a natural majority is not for the 6-3 Supreme Court. It's not for Donald Trump's MAGA Republican Party. And it's not for the Senate of Mitch McConnell. The problem is the Americans can't vote for the government that it, it both wants and deserves. I wonder about that. That's an optimistic reading, I think. Uh, and we, we should remember that Biden is uh, creating an atmosphere of moral hypocrisy on the fundamental issues of, that we're talking about. Uh, he stresses his friendship with Modi and uh, is very ambivalent about the horrible things that Netanyahu is associated with. How can one talk about an alliance of democracies when you are so fundamentally hypocritical. It's an alliance against China. And uh, to say, and any, any country that is willing to join that alliance, including Saudi Arabia, a very repressive, non-democratic country, is welcome to be in that alliance. And so, the ideological uh, roots of democracy are themselves uh, not credible uh, as a posture that opposes Trump. So Trump is the real thing in, uh, when you look at it this way. And he did have a vision of bypassing Europe and having a new geopolitical alignment with China and Russia, which might have avoided the Ukraine crisis, I'm not sure, or at least handled it very, very differently. And so we're in a period where the either or of American politics leaves one with 
very little foundation for genuine hope. Well, I mean, I think Richard is spot on. Uh, I mentioned the United Nations because I'm trying to see if we don't want to love Trump, uh, we should want to love something. Uh, We can love our families, we can love our friends, but in a larger sense, in, in a moment of uncertainty and insecurity, we're looking for certain places where we can believe and even love, if you want to use that word. And the examples we have out there, the United States, Richard's word hypocrisy is spot on, the United Nations, the international community, the Charter of the United Nations, human rights, we could go on. They're not out there. Uh, and that's why I asked the question about where can we look for something positive? Uh, and I do think uh, that lots of people are not going to vote in the United States this time, uh, perhaps not even thinking that, uh, well, if Trump gets elected, does it make that much difference? So I think there is not only gloom out there, but I would say that people are turning more to their own needs, uh, small needs, uh, family needs, uh, financial needs or whatever. But the whole concept of being part of a larger audience, a democratic uh, audience, a larger part of of a global marketplace uh, is, is losing uh, whatever appeal it might have. And it's, it's interesting to watch the paradox that at the same time the world becomes complex, interdependent, we become back to a certain form of tribalism. Uh, and certainly Trump and the cult of Trump is an example uh, of that return to a kind of simplistic, primitive tribalism that we thought we had overcome or the technologically demands a certain kind of response. Well, at the risk of becoming the closet optimist in this conversation, which <laughs> is not my normal role in most conversations, <laughs> let me just try a little bit to give not not to just dis- I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I just I do want to I do want to posit the the slightly positive side, which is I think that Trump's election in 2016 was an anomaly. They happen in American politics. His was an anomaly. Hillary Clinton, for whatever reason, had had a lot of negatives that people didn't want to vote for. Leave, leave that aside. He didn't win in 18. He didn't win in 20. He didn't win in 22 or his proxies. Um, I don't think he wins in 24. I, I At least I. if he does win, I think we can, whatever, however negative you've been, you can be more negative. But I would also say, Danny and Richard, that I do think in younger generations, you know, our children, your children, everybody's children, when you see some of the things that they have, that they're willing to tackle, climate change, inequality, economic distribution into the global south, that, and they're, they're devoting their lives to these causes, not simply just kind of kind of attending a, a you know a, a rally here and there that has to at some level that generation has to be heard it's not being heard by the bidens and by the supreme court and by the senate and by trump and that's and and that's to the detriment of of all of us and i and they're not being heard in countries other in beyond the united states not being heard in india Israel, Korea, you name it. 
but I do think in that younger generation, there are there is eloquence and there's optimism. Maybe not, optimism may be the wrong word. There's at least half that they're willing to commit themselves to. Matthew, I completely agree, and uh, I'm impressed by the people, the young people doing what you said. The question is the relationship between what they're doing and politics. Uh, and we started with the notion of Biden democracy, uh, and democracy has a cultural background to it, but it also has a very simple administrative one. And the question is how these young people can not only do what they're doing, but also get involved in a democratic process, political party, etc. And that seems to me to be complicated today. Uh, just to add to uh, a word to that, the political party that is in opposition to Trump is not something that is attractive to these idealistic younger people. So they have to almost create their own new organizing framework and mobilize support, which uh, which is possible to happen. We uh, Lots of unpredictable things have happened in uh, our lifetimes, so we shouldn't discount that. And uh, I would share the view that the younger generation is more attuned to way to how the world needs to work if it is to overcome these challenges that are confronting uh, the society and are being met by mediocre or worse leadership in the principal countries of the world. Since we're getting close to running out of time, let's end on, it, whether it's positive or negative, let's end on, on a literary note since you're both big readers. Let's each recommend to our listeners who've been with us for these all these 48 minutes a book that you've read, doesn't even have to be recently, that you think might be worth uh, kind of adding to some of the commentary on the subjects we've been discussing today. Dan, you, you mentioned The Best and the Brightest, which is a, a show in and of itself about the making of foreign policy in Vietnam. But... Is there another book that you might recommend to our listeners? Well, I was rereading Stanley Hoffman's book, Duties Beyond Borders, and I was working on how little is going to humanitarian assistance today and how much money is being spent militarily. And I think it's important when we see the people uh, fleeing the global south, the desperation and how here in Geneva, the International Committee of the Red Cross has a considerable deficit in its budget. Uh, and it seems to me The Duties Beyond Borders is a good book to reread. Stanley Hoffman. No, I agree with that. And um, there are a lot of th books that I sort of uh, would like to recommend. But I think for Americans, maybe this book that was written 10 years or so ago uh, with the title what's wrong with kansas is a good place to begin because it focuses on this phenomenon of people voting against their own interests uh, raises questions about 
how the society is organized and how the capitalist mystique has uh, led people to be distracted through these cultural issues like abortion and gay rights and other things. I mean, we haven't talked about that, but I think that's all part of this, the alienation that is uh, in some sense one of the sources of loving Trump, that he, he provides some kind of overview of the good society which is really a caricature and the uh, in, in what it really uh, uh, embraces is the coherence of the bad society but it it's something that engenders this kind of widespread love well i was going to suggest uh the Sinclair Lewis novel, It Can't Happen Here, which was about the 1936 election, which results, it's fiction, but it results in not Roosevelt's landslide win over Alf Landon, but the election of a, of a fascist American senator who is very Trump-like in his, in his depiction by Sinclair Lewis. And it describes quite a long novel, I would say more than 400 pages, about how the United States at least in a fictional sense, and I would say in a in a current sense with the MAGA Republicans, did embrace a, a native form of fascism. It might not have been Mussolini on his balcony, but it had all the elements. Now, Sinclair Lewis's novel ends not on a pessimistic note that in the sense that the fascism burns itself out like some wildfire in the in the West, but it, it certainly the, the the Lewis thesis is don't think that you're above the descent into anarchy, which so many other countries have descended into, because, as he says in his title, it can happen here. I think we've reached the end of our our allotted time, uh, gentlemen. One last wrap up thought. Let's start with let's end with Richard. Danny, you go first. I'll go second. And Richard will go third. Wrap up with anything you'd like to add? Well, I think the fact that the three of us continue to talk in spite of the fact that we're spread out around the world uh, is an indication that we shouldn't be all too gloomy. Well, since I'm here in Preshov, which is in eastern Slovakia, I will quote uh, David Lloyd George, who was one of the architects of world peace at Versailles. And in theory, on, on the side of angels, at least in, in some telling of, of history, not so much my telling of history, but at Versailles, that somebody was, they were talking about Slovakia, Wilson or whatever. And David Lloyd George said, who are the Slovaks? I can't quite seem to place them. So it tells <laughs> you that our leaders have, a, have, have limitations if we expect the direction from the top. Richard? I certainly agree with that uh, parting sentiment, and I'd say that uh, we can't know the future, but we can struggle to create the future we believe in. And if that message is widely enough disseminated, 
it might generate a new kind of uh, political uh, energy that could reframe politics in the United States and elsewhere. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Danny. And we'll we'll be back as a, the three of us at a at a date to be determined soon. Thanks again. Thank you.